Welcome back to our study of the Psalms. We are looking at Psalm 2 today. And Psalm 2 is a psalm that I wish that many more Christians were familiar with. For whatever reason, uh, it seems to be a psalm that not a lot of Christians know. But I think you will find, as we study this psalm, that not only does it have a lot uh, to say about Jesus, not only does it tie in to uh, some significant things from the story of Israel, but it also has much to say to us today. So um, to set this up, I want us to think about this. We know that there is good and evil in the world, and we know that there is a division between good and evil, and Psalm 2 talks about this division in the world, but what Psalm 2 does is Psalm 2 shows us that the division or the dividing line between good and evil is not always drawn in the place where we would draw it. So, for example, think about uh, the Jewish people in the biblical times. Uh, they drew the line between good and evil uh, between themselves and the Gentiles. Now, that's oversimplifying it a little bit, but you think about it like this. So they, they drew the line between good and evil between themselves and the Gentiles. So the Gentiles out there were clean, uh, unclean. Uh, they didn't want to associate them with them. Those They were the bad guys. They were the ones who were against the Lord. But the people of Israel saw themselves as the good guys, so to speak. They were on the Lord's side, or so they thought. But then when Jesus himself came, Many of the Jewish people opposed Jesus, and some Gentiles came to Jesus and followed Jesus and trusted Jesus. So it turned out the line between good and evil was not the line between Jew and Gentile. Instead, the line between good and evil was the line between those who believed Jesus and followed him and those who resisted him. And there were Jews and Gentiles on both sides of that line. Now, by breaking it down into good and evil, I'm not saying that, you know, following Jesus is something that good people do. Uh, we do it because we know we need Jesus, because we're sinners, because we're lost. What I mean is when the Bible divides between, you know, the righteous and the unrighteous, or the godly and the wicked, right, between good and evil, as it were, um, those who are on the side of the Lord are not those who are good in themselves, but who have come to the Lord for grace and mercy and forgiveness and to be made new. And so they are the righteous because of Christ, because of the Lord. And then, of course, they begin to walk in righteousness and on and on and on. But my point is that the Jews and the Gentiles, or the Jews, drew that line between themselves and the Gentiles. And still today, we often draw the line between good and evil in the wrong places. And uh, we want to be aware of that. We want to be careful about that. We want to look instead to what the scripture says about where we are to draw that dividing line. We today, for example, may be prone to draw that line, uh, like Israel, around national boundaries. So people in our country are good. People out there in those countries are bad, especially if it's a country that we have some form of hostility against. But as Christians, we know we have brothers and sisters in Christ in that country, whatever country it is. And we know that here in our own country, we have many who 
dishonor the Lord, rebel against the Lord, are opposed to the Lord. So it's not it's not a matter of you know drawing this line around us versus them, uh, you know our country versus their country or whatever. Instead, what what Psalm two is going to show us, or the whole Bible shows us, is that what matters, the only dividing line that really matters, is do you trust the Lord or do you resist the Lord? Do you believe in the Lord or do you reject the Lord? That's really what matters. So here we go. Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the first thing we want to see uh, in Psalm 2 is how Psalm 2 ties into Israel's story. So Psalm 2 grows out of the promises that God made to David and David's own experience. David, of course, was anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, It was um, the prophet Samuel who came to anoint David. And uh, when David was anointed, he didn't automatically become the king. Uh, Saul was still on the throne, but he had been designated, set apart as God's king. And one of the very next things that uh, David does is he fights Goliath, who is the lead warrior of the Philistines. And Goliath is defying the armies of God, and he mocks David, who is the Lord's anointed, and uh, resists him. But David, of course, slays Goliath, and uh, David uh, fights against the Philistines. uh, And there are other countries all throughout the Old Testament, right? Other peoples who fight against God's people, who resist them, uh, who, um, you know, and who fight against Israel's king. And so this psalm, where it says that the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, and they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, that grows out of, again, the experience of David and other parts of the Old Testament as well. And also grows out of these promises that God made to David, where uh, God made a covenant with him in 2 Samuel 7, where God told David that one of his own descendants would sit on his throne and reign Ever, that God would establish his kingdom, that uh, his son would build a temple for the Lord, and God said that he would be to him as a father, and uh, and he, the, the offspring of David, would be as a son uh, to the Lord. And so when David talks about uh, verse uh, 6, you know, God, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's talking about the king from David's line. Um, when he says um, in uh, verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's that language from 
God's promise to David about how God would treat his son who would sit on his throne, that God would be like a father to him and that he would be like a son uh, to God. So uh, David is writing out of those promises uh, and out of his experience. And then, of course, also under the inspiration of the spirit and knowing that uh, from his line would ultimately come the Messiah. Uh, also, we remember that Solomon, after David died, Solomon became king, or uh, at the end of David's life, Solomon became king in Jerusalem, and Solomon's kingdom uh, stretched all the way, uh, the Bible says in 1 Kings 4.21, it says Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. If you look at a map, that's a pretty big portion of land. Uh, and God says uh, here in Psalm 2 to the king, his son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Uh, God even, or uh, David said in response to God's promise, uh, this is instruction for mankind. In other words, what God's going to do with uh, David's house is something that the whole world needs to listen to and learn about because it's going to affect everyone. So Psalm 2 grows out of David's uh, experience and God's promises to David. And uh, and <clears throat> then what David says in Psalm 2 is this. So if it, it's kind of broken up into four brief sections, and here's what those four sections are about. Number one, in verses one to three, the nations plot rebellion against God and against his anointed. Right? So they, they don't want God to rule, and they don't want God's anointed king to rule. And then in verses 4 through 6, it tells us that God has established his king and is undeterred by this rebellion from the nations. God uh, it holds them in derision. He laughs. He's not bothered. He is not frightened. He's not made anxious by their rebellion. He establishes his king, and he is not worried about the outcome. And then third, verses 7 through 9, it, uh, the king we are told, is God's son and will inherit the earth, inherit the nations. And then finally, verses 10 to 12, it says, therefore, the people should serve God and his anointed king. All right, so it says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the son. That's the king. The son and the king are the same person. So, uh, so that's what David is talking about. The nations rebelling against God and his anointed king. God not being deterred by that, but having established his king on Zion and telling his king, you are my son, I will give you the nations. And then telling the world, you should serve me and kiss the son, bow before the son, right? Take refuge in him. The, the very last verse says, blessed are all who take refuge in him, the son, the king. So that's what Psalm 2 is about. That's, that's what it grows out of from David's story and God's promises to David. And that's what David uh, speaks of in Psalm 2. But of course, this psalm is not only about David and David's experience and the experience of the kingdom of Israel. It's ultimately about Jesus. We know that Jesus himself said that the psalms had to be fulfilled in him. The scriptures are all about him. And so it's not surprising to see in this psalm uh, clear connections to Jesus. Uh, for example, when it mentions the anointed in verse 2, of course, in one sense, that refers to David. 
who was anointed as king, or to Solomon, uh, who became king after him. But more ultimately, your, your translation might do like mine does and capitalize that word anointed and capitalize king and capitalize son because we know ultimately that's about Jesus. The word anointed uh, here in the psalm is the word Messiah. The word uh, in the New Testament is Christ. All of those mean Christ and Messiah mean anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. That's one clear way we know this psalm is ultimately about him. We also know it's ultimately about him because in Acts chapter 4, believers, disciples of Jesus, uh, gather together and pray, and they pray this psalm. They talk about this psalm, and they explain it for us. They interpret it for us. And what they say uh, might be a little bit surprising. So this is after the apostles have been persecuted, and then they gather with the believers, and it says, uh, when they heard it, when they heard what had happened, you know, uh, with the apostles, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, this is in um, Acts 4, beginning of verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So David wrote this psalm. The Holy Spirit inspired him. Um, but God, ultimately, you were saying this, right? You, through the mouth of our uh, Father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then here's here's God what you said. Why did the Gentiles rage? Gentiles, nations, means the same thing. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So that's the first part of Psalm 2 that we were just hearing about. Now here's how they uh, sort of interpret that and explain that in their prayer. They say, for truly in this city, they're in Jerusalem, were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Right? So he's the anointed one the psalm is talking about. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, right, the Romans, and the peoples of Israel. So when it says, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? They say, the Gentiles, yeah, the Romans, Pilate, they were against Jesus. But also, why did the peoples plot in vain? The peoples of Israel, who also plotted against Jesus, who called out for his crucifixion. But they say, what they did was uh, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, they did not throw God's plan into disarray. By crucifying Jesus, God's anointed. Instead, they actually fulfilled what God had planned and purposed for Jesus. He had sent his son so that he could lay down his life. In the in Psalm 2, uh, how, what is God's response to the, the plotting and scheming of these uh, peoples and nations? He says, I've put my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, what happened to Jesus? When they plotted against him and handed him over and called for his crucifixion, he was crucified. But even in the act of being crucified, Pilate put uh, the charge uh, against Jesus on the cross so that people could see what he was being crucified for and what did that piece of wood or whatever it was say. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. So even as they were seeking to uh, get rid of him, 
It was being proclaimed to the world who Jesus was, that he was the king. So the psalm connects to the story of Jesus. It also connects to the identity of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews is uh, seeking to, to show the people he's writing to that Jesus is far superior to the angels. He's not, he's not just like, he's not equal to angels or like an angel, uh, you know, above men, but below God. That's not, he is, that's not who he is. He is far greater than angels. So the writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter one, verse five, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, which comes out of Psalm two. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, which comes from that promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So Jesus is the son and he is the king and he is the Messiah. The son and the king in the psalm are the same figure. And those two things come most perfectly together in Jesus himself, who is the eternal son of God. Solomon was treated by God like a son. I'll be to him as a father. He will be to me as a son. But Jesus is God's eternal son. So it shows us his identity. It, tell, it connects with his story. And then it also points to Jesus' authority. God uh, says in the psalm, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. Well, when Jesus rises from the dead and he meets with his disciples one last time in the Gospel of Matthew, what is Jesus telling him, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So, what is he saying? He has authority over all the nations. So, go preach in all the nations and make disciples, make followers of me from among all the nations. Because they all belong to me. That's what Psalm 2 is talking about. It also says in Psalm 2, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Not all the people in all the nations are going to bow their knee to Jesus and become disciples and follow him. For them, he rules them with a rod of iron, which is not a pleasant thing, right? Revelation 19, John picks this up. And in the description of, of Jesus there in that chapter where he's returning on the, on the white horse, it says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, referring back to Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 is clearly fulfilled in Jesus. It grows out of David's story and God's promises to David there in 2 Samuel 7. But what does Psalm 2 say to us today? In addition to helping us understand what God had promised to David and how David understood those promises. In addition to how it helps us understand uh, the rebellion against Jesus. And how that was thwarted, and Jesus' identity, and Jesus' authority. What does this have to say to us? Well, still today, the world's opposition is to God and Christ. Still today, the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed. That includes our own nation. That includes other nations. The world is in opposition to God. The world rebels against God. And, you know, that reminds us of, God's kingdom is not bound to a particular nation. God's kingdom is not of this world. 
if God's kingdom had been bound to a particular nation, it would have stayed with the nation of Israel. But even inside of Israel, when Jesus came, there were many who rejected him. Some who called for his crucifixion. Some who wanted to put him to death. But when Jesus was standing before Pilate, and Pilate said, are you a king? What did Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would have been fighting. Right? They would have been wielding swords. But Jesus told Peter to put his sword away. The kingdom of God is not the same as any kingdom or nation on earth. It is made up of the people who have bowed their knee to Jesus as king. And that ultimately is going to be people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Not every person of every nation, but people from every nation. There are some who uh, try to use this, uh, this kind of language and this kind of framing of the world of good versus evil and they're rebelling against God's chosen one. And they try to put that label on themselves or on someone else. And they say, this is God's chosen one and we have to support them because the world is against them. Well, here's the thing. We know who God's chosen one is. We know who God's anointed one is. It's Jesus, and our allegiance is to him. And when the world opposes him, it also opposes us, and we stand with him, and we trust him. But we don't want to allow people to use that kind of language or that idea to get us behind somebody other than Jesus, to cast our lot with them. That's not what this is for. This is for reminding us that there's the kingdom of God and there's the rest of the world. And we follow King Jesus, even though the world opposes him. God's not troubled by that. We shouldn't be either. Instead, we should remember that still today, God's decree stands, right? In the middle of that psalm, God's response to all this rebellion and, and turmoil and whatnot is, I've set my king on my holy hill. Well, God has set Jesus up as his king. In fact, even now, Jesus is seated at God's right hand above all rule and authority and power. And we don't have to worry about anything because Jesus rules. Jesus is in control. But still today, God's decree stands. And then finally, still today, blessing belongs to those who take refuge in the Son. This is where the psalm ends. The end of verse 12, blessed are all who take refuge in him, that is, in the Son, in the anointed king, in Jesus. Blessing comes. Remember, Psalm 1 started with this. Blessed is the man who. Blessing comes to those who trust Jesus, who take refuge in Jesus, who follow Jesus, who do not resist the Lord and his anointing, but who serve the Lord and kiss the Son. Right, who bow to the anointed, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus himself. That's where true blessing is found. God bless you.